Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Measuring time is ubiquitous. It's all around us all the time, and most people don't give a second thought to checking the time or date dozens of times per day. But marking the passage of time is a human invention, and one we've been struggling to perfect for millennia. So how has this practice changed over the course of history? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about... I didn't even really title this properly in my notes. I suppose timekeeping. Hmm. Um, we're going to be talking about calendars and clocks. Chronometry. Sure, why not? I'm fine with that. We're going to be talking about the way that people over the years have me- measured time. And man, that sounds a little bit boring off the top, but like, I promise you this is going to be one of the most interesting ones we've done in a very long time. I'm very excited about this topic. I can tell. Um, it's It's a really interesting thing to me because the concept is so you know, arbitrary and and artificial, but it's also such a fundamental part of our lives that we don't really think about uh, the the alternative ways that things like this could be measured or reckoned. I think Adams described it as wibbly-wobbly. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's probably the most apt and accurate description. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, for me especially, I've, I've always been really interested in in Clocks. I don't know if you knew about this, but uh, my my grandfather actually repaired clocks for decades and decades. Oh, I did not. Yeah, I, I apparently called him Grandpa TikTok when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have memories of this, but I, I'm I am not ashamed of that. I think that is a delightful name for my grandfather. That sounds like a nursing home Batman villain. <laughs> okay, well that's just rude. I'm sorry, but be cool to have a grandpa this is batman nemesis in the nursing home i would go down to the basement in their house and it's just filled with clocks it's still filled with clocks um it was it was a kind of a mesmerizing thing to get kind of close to the hour and all of a sudden three dozen clocks just start chiming more or less at the same time but never quite at the same time hmm. these are all grandfather clocks and like olds wind up things down to you know watch repairs but yeah, it's it's always been kind of a, a fascination for me. So, yeah, even more of a personal tie to this one, I think, than than some of the other uh, topics that we've done in the past. One of the things that I came across, and and normally I would leave this until the era that it comes from, but I wanted to get it out of the way as early as possible, is a uh, a historian and philosopher named Lewis Mumford, and in the 1930s, 1934 specifically, he wrote a book called Technics and Civilization about the relationship between 
people and uh, the technology that surrounds them in their life and the way that um, those two things interact, not necessarily being uh, an absolute, there's there's not really a uh, uh, inevitability to it, but rather the fact that the things that we surround ourselves with sort of reflect our own uh, morals and ideals and things like that. And one of the points that he makes in this book is that, in his opinion, when it comes to the Industrial Revolution specifically, he doesn't consider, say, the steam engine as being the most important invention, uh, but rather the clock. Yeah. And his specific reasoning for that is that without being able to measure something, a thing can't be commodified. And that in order to kind of move to an industrial society, you need to have that ability to sell your time to someone else. And in order to sell something, you need to be able to measure it accurately. You can't really go around selling something that neither party is necessarily confident in the accuracy of that thing. Otherwise, you're going to have disagreement. And it's this idea that we've chosen to build our lives around the measurement of time um, and that the entire economy of the modern world is built around this ability to measure time. And without that ability, um, we would be living in a much different uh, society, a much different world. Whether that's functionally true in terms of importance, I'm not sure, but like, it's a very interesting way to look at time, at least to get ourselves kind of started and pull ourselves out of the idea of like, well, it's just this nebulous concept that is, you know, it is the way it is. No, we've, we've chosen very much how to define our time and how to measure our time. Well, I think it's easy to get a exposure to that because, you know, in the simple case, when you go camping or go down to the beach or something and you intentionally remove uh, your watch or you stop looking at your phone for the, the time, when you, once you stop keeping track of it because mm. you aren't in your normal habits of employment or whatever uh yeah you, you get a very different sense of what a day feels like because mm. you aren't watching the minutes pass yeah all of a sudden you're going to bed at 9 p.m and it's perfectly fine and you're also getting up at 5 a.m for some reason and this is also fine for some reason yeah it sounds nice it sounds very nice doesn't it and and i think there's always been a bit of a or always since since that uh, implementation of like industrialized time i think there's been a romanticization of that because oh, yeah. this idea of not needing to keep track of time almost becomes a luxury in and of itself mm -hmm. um Let's start actually with uh, sort of that natural passing of time, though, because I think we kind of have to go back to like basic concepts uh, before we can really define some of the stuff we're going to talk about later on. Um, a day is a very natural, fundamental way of uh, keeping track of time. It's probably the most obvious in terms of uh, observability, which again we don't necessarily really think about that much but like even on a biological level as we mentioned if you're not paying attention to it you sort of fall into a routine that's very much tied to the fact that the light comes and goes the temperature rises and falls um circadian rhythms are literally tied to this cycle and not just in human beings but in most living things um circadian actually comes from uh, about a day circa diem mm -hmm. i think that's one of those things everyone's kind of heard of and most people maybe associate with sleep but like don't really think about that much the fact that the sun rises and sets or rather doesn't rise and set but the earth uh rotates and, and it appears to do so um blowing my mind i know man ever listen to the flaming lips there's a song do you realize <laughs> uh the fact that that happens is so self-evident that we we often take that as a as sort of a, a given an assumption um and 
as a result, it's even uh, used as a as an example of something we shouldn't necessarily take as a as a default or assumption in in philosophy and things like that. But you know, at the same time, we have to keep in mind the fact that the Earth rotates in twenty four hours. That's just a fluke of uh, you know astrophysics. That's just a thing that happens to happen here. Other planets rotate at faster and slower speeds. It's just what we're dealing with. Um, same thing with a month. It's one moon cycle. This one's even weirder than days because there's no reason we should have had a moon at all. Hmm. Uh, the fact that the moon is tidally locked with us is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that the moon is of the same apparent size in the su- in the sky as the sun uh, is also extremely rare. Yeah, that one's weird. Yeah, that one's weird. And the fact that it occasionally uh, uh, one obscures the other from time to time uh, is... Uh, exceedingly rare apparently it's it's like shrinkingly uncommon um but what it gives us is apparently in the sky the the phases of the moon i mean there's no reason that the the shadow of the earth cast by the sun onto the moon's surface should be basically exactly the size of the the moon itself or or cover it fairly fairly exactly um there's no reason that should happen but it gives us a, a you know approximately 29 day uh cycle where it's a longer period of time than a day to keep track of, but it's short enough that you can more or less just figure out how long a month is by watching for when a new moon occurs. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the first things that we should point out here is that the month isn't exactly divisible by days, right? It's slightly, um, well, longer or shorter, depending on how you want to call it. Um, and it also depends on where you're measuring from. So, the apparent month is 29.53 days. That's what's known as a synodic month. Hmm. But the actual amount of time that it takes from a, a non-moving perspective for the Earth, for the moon to go around the Earth is more like 27.3 days. Um, that's called a sidereal uh, orbit. But it takes a little bit longer because of the Earth's progression around the sun for us oh, to yeah. see an entire phase. This is going to be another thing that we're going to be talking about as we go through. I know it seems really nitpicky right now, but what things like calendars are actually measuring really matters. And mm-hmm. there's cultural decisions that get made around which thing matters the most. So in the normal progress of time, mm-hmm. if you are standing on one spot on the earth mm-hmm. and um, nearly a month elapses, mm-hmm. uh, which is it synodic or uh, sidereal that you, uh, which length is, is the length that you observe directly in the sky? Synodic. The, the sidereal is more if you were uh, somehow observing from space and watching right. from fixed uh, position in space. Yeah, if you were you were watching uh, the the moon return to the same point in its orbit around the Earth, right. that would be sidereal. Again, though, there's there's really no reason that that a month as a as a length of time should really matter to us, other than that easily observable natural phenomenon. So, uh, again, something we kind of take for granted, but is a complete coincidence. Um, and then finally, the year. Which is, there's so many ways to define a year, honestly. Um, one full orbit of the Earth around the sun uh, is basically how that works, but depends. Are you doing sidereal? So, same point in the orbit around the sun, that's 365.256 days. Um, are you looking at tropical? So, the amount of time it takes for the Earth uh, to reach the same point in the seasons. Uh, that's a little bit shorter. It's three sixty-five point two four two, approximately. So that's that's based on like the the equinoxes, right? Um, 
And that's a function of wobble in the Earth's orbit, basically. Um, the tilt of the axis um, of the Earth is between 21 and 24 degrees at any given time. Right now, it's a little over 23 degrees. Um, like a top on the table, slowly mm-hmm. losing its momentum. Yeah, and that's that's the the Earth's own rotation uh, versus the rotation around the Sun, and and they're they're offset, which is what causes seasons. If it was perfectly um, perpendicular to our orbit around the sun there would be no seasons because the entire earth would get uh, exactly 12 hours of uh, light and 12 hours of dark every day uh, absolutely no variation so again the seasons even occurring is just another random happenstance of of the the tilt of the earth's orbit it's both the absolute tilt but also the wobble in the angle of that tilt that means that the uh, the exact tropical year varies yes yeah. so Measuring days, obviously very easy. Sunrise to sunrise or noon to noon, however you feel like doing that is, is kind of up to you as, a, as an observer. Or sunset to sunset. Eh, whatever you prefer. Any of them works. And, and obviously there's issues when you're keeping exact time because the length of days or length of sunlight in a day can, uh, can vary. But um, length of a month, again, fairly easy. New moon to new moon is the most common one because you, you go basically from the, the moment you first see a sliver of, uh, uh, of waxing moon. Observing the year, kind of hard to do. There are certainly ways of doing it just kind of through brute force observation. It takes a very, very long time to figure out approximately how long uh, a year is, though. Um, because, you know, based on weather rather than climate the the apparent beginning of seasons can vary somewhat and observing something like an equinox is not the easiest thing to do uh, at least for for ancient people however in the third century bce uh, the greeks discover uh, that the earth is round and that's a thing that we have known for well over two thousand years and it is not in any dispute whatsoever looking at you youtube yeah the thing that they notice along with for listeners there's been a resurgence in flat earth theory about it's the funniest thing if it wasn't so concerning yeah it ends up being just kind of sad it absolutely does um the discovery of a round earth leads to basically a conception of the stars as being on the inside of a larger sphere that surrounds the earth it's a geocentric model but for all intents and purposes, it actually is still a, a relevant model today, even though it's not actually true. Um, unless you're doing like very advanced astrophysics, uh, the amount of real movement in um, in the stars is, is kind of difficult for a layperson to observe. So for very basic stuff, to just more or less think of it as a big sphere that rotates around the Earth, it works. For stars, for for planets, it's a different matter. Yes, exactly. And that's what uh, the planets, uh, or or that's the reason that the planets were held as different than the stars, because they could see uh, through through observances that the stars were rotating uh, around one axis, or rather the Earth rotating around uh, uh, one axis, causing the stars to appear to rotate. And then the planets and the sun uh, appear to be rotating on another axis. And that would cause those bodies to uh, wander uh, throughout the stars. The, the name planet means wanderer. Um, and in this uh, in this model, the sun and the planets are kind of in the same class of, of celestial body um, because of that sort of inconsistent movement. 
the Greeks would use that um, apparent movement of the sun through the stars uh, to uh, determine where exactly in the cycle of the year the Earth was. Because what would happen is if you were on the equator, for simplicity's sake, um, at the equinox, so basically at spring or at fall, the sun should be perfectly above you. It should be in line with the equator. And then uh, at the um, solstices, so in the summer, uh, the sun would be north of the equator. Um, and in the, the winter, it would be the furthest south of the equator uh, when, when looking in the sky. So they would use that positioning within the stars to measure exactly how far north or south, or, or rather the, the, uh, the appearance of stars above the horizon. And so that's where we sort of started kind of dialing in more carefully exactly how long a year is. There's other ways of doing it too. The Egyptians were using um, uh, shadow sticks basically uh, to determine when the equinox was, because if you set up a, a well, if you set up a, a pole vertically, it casts a shadow from the sun. And uh, because Egypt was more or less basically uh, exactly on the equator, the stuff was relatively easy for them. Um, if the if the shadow that that stick is casting uh, is exactly um, east-west of that stick, then you know that it's the equinox. Um, right. As it moves north or south, it's it's varying from the equinox. So they were cheating. More or less. It, it, it certainly uh, helps things out for them. In terms of what a calendar is actually doing and why we keep them, I mean, we've been keeping calendars since before written history. This is a, a thing that human beings have been doing for a very, very, very long time. Oh, yeah, I, I know. I've played Civ. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the first ones you get, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, as far as we can tell, probably since the last time there was an ice age, potentially before. Oh, wow. This is a, this is a pre-writing technology. Keeping, time, keeping track of time is one of the oldest things that we as human beings uh, have done. How, how does it relate to the appearance of cave paintings? Like I assume cave paintings precede just because, you know, otherwise they would be calendar paintings. Mm -hmm. But um, what what time frame relative to the two cave paintings would that fall under? Um, we have older cave paintings than we do necessarily calendars. Most of the things that we have that we're calling calendars here are... Sticks um, with things scratched into them. Well, yes, there there is that things that we're finding in in uh, graves and stuff that that we're calling calendars. Um, a lot of that stuff is kind of sketchy. It's you know any, anything with twelve circles in an arc on it, people are going to call a lunar calendar. Um, it's it's a little bit tricky that way. The um, the oldest widely accepted calendar structure um, is in Scotland. Actually, it's called Warren Field. And it's about 12,000 years old. Oh. And it's uh, this fairly large structure that uh, uh, holds 12 pits uh, in an arc that, that uh, replicates the, the arc of the um, sun in the, in the sky. At what time of year? Um, it, I'm not sure when the start and beginning is. So it's, it's a lunar calendar. So it's, it's, uh, it's saying like at this full moon, the sun should be here. At this full moon, the sun should be here right. in an arc. Um, there's tons of these structures throughout the world, though. People were building things to mark where, um, the, uh, you know, the highest point or the lowest point that the sun was in the sky. 
um, using fixed uh, items. Uh, I assume we're going to get to the uh, obvious one slightly south of Scotland. Yeah, I mean, Stonehenge is a newcomer compared to a lot of these. Oof. Um, well, I mean, Stonehenge is, is only, in this case, 5,000 years old. New druid punks. Yeah. Um, Stonehenge is set up um, famously to align with the sunset at the winter solstice and the sunrise at the summer solstice. So those are the two ends of the complex. Um, there's some more disputed stuff saying that like it'll also align with and then add a few more uh, astronomical phenomena here. But those are the two that are like absolutely undisputed. That's what it does. And there are actually older uh, calendars claimed than the one in Warren Field, but the, they're a little bit sketchier. It's um, it, it's hard to pinpoint for sure. But in general, what it's doing is marking, uh, using a monument where the sun is going to be at a certain time of year. Um, so, so is Warren Field near a settlement or, or is this something that was out in the wilderness that we've kind of rediscovered? Um, you know what? I can honestly not say. I, uh, I'll look some stuff up on that and put it in the notes. It's, uh, it, it was rediscovered. I, I can't remember what year. I, it was a couple of days ago that I was reading about this. Um, but it wasn't exactly like a, you know, under a parking lot or something like that. No. Yeah. Well, that's what I, it, I'm curious because um, these kinds of things, you wonder how they manage to last as long as they do. Uh, it was excavated. I do know that much. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Especially on that time frame, you'd, you'd start to worry about glacial effect on on structures especially something as north of scotland yeah stuff like this though kind of raises the question like well why why bother basically what's 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 the point of keeping track of all of this stuff yeah there's societies that are a little creepily into timekeeping yeah and i mean it's pretty simple i mean the the main one is agriculture you want to know when to start planting that's about it fine that makes sense there's also the um uh, there, there is also the religious ritual aspect of it. And and I mean, that stuff at the time period we're talking about here uh, is not really separate from the study of astronomy. That's That, that all goes part and parcel um, for the people who are doing these measurements. And so a better understanding of time and a better, better measurement of time leads to a better understanding of astronomy, which for these people means a better understanding of the divine. So keeping time is almost a, a religious acts it's a it's a ritualized thing um so there's the the practical aspects of it but but there is the um the sort of uh spiritual as well sumerians who is they're, they're the first known civilization in mesopotamia one of the earliest civilizations that we know of along with uh extremely ancient egypt and uh civilizations in the indus valley um sumerians though are the ones that first come up with writing as far as we can tell Right. Uh, they're also the first ones that we have uh, a written uh, calendar. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, they used what's known as a lunisolar calendar, which is a combination of a lunar calendar and a solar calendar, as the name would suggest. And this is really interesting because right off the bat, we're starting with a really competently uh, built calendar. Hmm. So Sumerians develop writing around 3000 BCE, 5,000 years ago, and right away they're writing about these, these calendars. So they probably have them before writing is invented. What a lunisolar calendar does is it pays attention to the tropic solar year, so specifically the seasonal solar year. And it marks that year using uh, the phases of the moon. 
which in a lot of ways is uh, uh, sounds like what we do currently with the Gregorian calendar. Um, it's still not, uh, or it's still more closely tied to the actual moon phases than the modern calendar, but it, it's we're, we're already pretty close. The calendar is not a thing that has changed a whole lot over mm-hmm. the millennia. The months alternated between 29 and 30 days. Remember that uh, a moon phase is about 29 and a half days. So they alternated their months between 29 and 30 to keep that more or less on track. And they end up with a year of 354 days. Not bad. Um, Months begin on a new moon. Year begins at the spring equinox. The year beginning at spring is going to be a very common thing. In fact, uh, us starting the year on January 1st is kind of uh, a weird thing to do. Uh, Hmm. Not many uh, uh, civilizations we're going to talk about here do that. So 354 days. They're 11 days short. So every second or third year uh, alternating, uh, a 13th month was added to the year. And that recalibrates more or less to the proper season. Is it perfect? No. Is it pretty good? Yeah, absolutely. They want to keep the uh, months more or less in line with the tropical year, so the the seasons, the progression of the seasons. And over time, um, it's basically a matter of deciding, should we insert that 13th month this year or next year? And they'll go by when they're expecting the equinox to fall versus when they actually observe the equinox to fall. Hmm. And if it's getting too far out of whack, add the extra month and we're back on track. I mean, yeah, it's a reasonable compromise. This is called uh, uh, an intercalary um, Mm. uh, uh, correction. I mean, it's still, it's not metric time. It's not perfection, but... No, but it's very good. This is 5,000 years ago. We, we only just figured out writing, apparently. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give this one to you, though. Yep. It's not bad. And I'll be honest with you, there are going to be worse calendars before there's better ones. Um, they didn't have weeks as we, talk, as we think about it. And that's one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, weeks. I guess that's not necessarily uh, a very natural uh, division of anything. It's much more arbitrary even than something like a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, we're super lucky we have the the moon. Yeah, absolutely. But but even then, the 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 month at least there's that that natural marker. Yeah. The week, nah. So they did have uh, festivals that took place place on the first of the month, the seventh of the month, and the fifteenth of the month. And remember, because they're basing it directly on the phases of the moon, that means uh, festivals on the new moon, half moon, and full moon. Okay. Um, and those would be religious festivals, days off work, things like that. Uh, the Egyptian calendar, extremely good. Extremely good. They had a 365-day year. Oh, wow. Yes. This calendar was potentially founded before the Old Kingdom was founded. Oh, Which wow. is normally the marker for like the beginning of the Egyptian civilization. Now we know like lots of stuff happened before that yeah. um but like you're getting into really poorly kept records at that point so this egyptian calendar is in place by 2500 bce features a 365 day year divided into three months or, or sorry or rather three uh seasons each season is 120 days and these seasons aren't based on like tropical seasons as we would normally consider them they're based on uh seasons of the nile so you have um, uh, a flooding period, a uh, 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 growing period, and a, a dry period. And that 
makes a lot of sense. It was a much more present thing in their lives being right on the equator than than uh, we would necessarily consider the progression of the seasons uh, further north or further south. Then after that 360-day uh, cycle of three seasons occurs, there's uh, five intercalary days. And these five days are considered outside of the year somewhat. And for the Egyptians specifically, they were... Uh, in order, the birthdays of the gods Osiris, Horus, Set, Isis, and Nephthys. So they were five religious holidays in a row. And at that point, they reset to the beginning of the, beginning of the next year. There's some theories out there that the reason they're so accurate on the number of days is that even though the Nile was variable on when it flooded and things like that, if you take... Uh, not even that large set of years and average out the number of days for the cycle of the Nile, it will come out to 365. It was very regular for them. Well, it'll be way more regular than the weather. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, that suggests that they can get a very accurate year um, without actually resorting to astrological um, observance, which is interesting because they're better positioned than some of the further north civilizations at this point to make those observations. Yeah, especially being close to the equator. Mm -hmm. The Egyptians uh, started tracking regnal years beginning in the Old Kingdom. So basically what they would do is um, you'll hear about various kingdoms and those are like dynasties, right? It's, it's bloodlines. But then within those bloodlines, they'll have uh, specific pharaohs and they'll say year one of that pharaoh, year two of that pharaoh's reign, year three. Uh, and then when they die, it becomes the, the first year of the next pharaoh. You talked about this a bit in the uh, Akhenaten episode didn't mm -hmm. you yep yep it, it's a very common way of keeping track of time though i mean the sumerians are doing this as well um counting years is again a weird feature of our calendar because the question is when do you count years from and what do you do with years before that number it's a it's a weird quirk mm -hmm. and we're going to see a couple of different solutions to that uh, as we move through but um the the regnal years seems to be a, a very very common uh, way of dealing with that particular problem. Where it becomes an issue, though, is when you're looking at things historically, because it requires a very um, strong working knowledge of history in order to understand what uh, a year outside of the current uh, ruler's uh, reign actually means in any functional way. England technically does this, or the UK technically does this still uh, with the monarchy. Um, we're in uh, year 67 of yeah. uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign. But if I say to you, um, this thing happened in the third year of Henry VII's reign, when was that? Ugh. Like, I don't even know. Like, I, I could take a guess, maybe. I could get you the century. That's about it. Um, like, it's a useless thing unless you know that stuff down. And I suppose it was more useless in the past um, given the speed at which things have changed in everyday life in modern times, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that flight came about, you know, about 115 years ago, mm -hmm. that's a meaningful time period of like, oh, well, that that's a big discontinuous change in what we do every day. Yeah. Whereas when you're in an agricultural society, what happened 115 years ago looks pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. Referring to it is not very, for most people, practically useful. Yeah, it's, it's basically, it's not a concern at all. 
uh, the, the calendar is only useful to you uh, probably within the current year. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, uh, who cares? They lived in the moment. <laughs> the Persian calendar developed about 4,000 years ago. Uh, actually favored a solar calendar over a lunisolar calendar. So they kind of ignored whatever the moon was doing. They found that it wasn't as important to them. And interestingly enough, the sun represented a much more uh, central part of their uh, belief system than uh, than what you would have seen in Sumeria, for example. Um, these things don't always correlate, but they do sometimes matter a little bit. Uh, you, you do see the odd, the odd uh, connection. They use 12 30-day months, um, which gives you 360 days. And then every six years, they added an extra month for calibration. Works out pretty well. Yeah. That way, you don't have to deal with that weird five-day period in there. I mean, to be honest, I find that pretty attractive as an idea. Actually, me too. I oh. kind of love it a little bit. Exactly um, even days. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's this interesting thing that's going on here where... Um, you know, let's let's take things back even even more basic. Why do we use base ten? Yeah, base ten in math being you know after zero to nine you move up a decimal place. Now you're in you know one zero instead of uh, another numeral after nine. Um, not everybody did. There's a lot of other really good base systems out there. Mm-hmm. Um, base twelve is really common. Have you ever heard the the rationale that's sometimes given for base twelve? I believe I have, but I don't recall it. So first of all, 12 is really useful for uh, mathematics that involve fractions because yeah. 12 has a lot more... Uh, Divisors. Yes. Um, there's also a biological reason, right? The the biological reason be- behind base 10 supposedly is 10 fingers, right? Yep. You can count to 12 very easily on one hand using the joints... Or sorry, uh, your finger bones. Oh, so you, yes. use your, you use your thumb and point to uh, one, two, three finger bones in each... Uh, in each finger and you get to 12 on one hand Uh, then you can actually take your other hand and use the fingers there to keep track and using two hands you can get up to 60 very easily right so once you count to 12 once put up your thumb on the other hand get to 12 again next finger um base 60 is also really commonly used because Mm -hmm. it's got again a lot of divisors but gives you more granularity the babylonians did a lot with that yes okay absolutely and that's kind of where i'm getting to on 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 this uh these these systems that use specifically 360 day uh, uh day years are attractive because they're already using base 12 and now they have a year that fits exactly into their base system it would be like if we had a year that happened to work out to 400 days that would be nice. Well, according to the French in the late 18th century, we do. <laughs> they didn't quite do that, but yeah, I, I, I get what you're. I get what you're getting at. Uh, decimal time gets very weird. Um, it's very attractive it's to have only 300. a true answer. <laughs> it's very attractive to have 360 days when you're working in base 12 or base 60. Um, having those five extra days that you just don't count. I mean, we were almost there. Why not just pretend those five days don't exist? Just have a party. Just. Um, just have a big party. Yeah. And then when you get to the Persian calendar, this uh, uh, 30-day months with the, the six-year calibration means that you never even have to have that five-day calibration. You just always have 30 days at a time, uh, which is just fitting in really nicely to everything. Over the centuries, this would the, the Persian calendar would develop into the Babylonian calendar, which is what you were referring to. And they, uh, they actually started off with a 10-day division. So they had uh, three 10-day weeks per month. 
eventually it was modified to uh, seven. They counted every seventh day as what they called an evil day um, or, or a holiday. It, it, they alternated back and forth. But the idea was of the, the evil day was it's bad luck to work that day. Let's just take it off. <laughs> I like some of the rationales that people have had to build into their lives over the years to not work. It's bad luck. It's bad luck. Just don't do it. Nothing good is going to come of it. Stay home. I mean, work enough days in a row, working very, very long hours doing agricultural things, and you'd probably start to get tired and sloppy in what you do and start to make more mistakes. And you might, you, I could, you know, backport a, an explanation for why that would make sense for it to be a, a bad luck day. I think we're all rationalizing here and that's okay. Yeah. In the sixth century BCE, um, the Babylonians uh, invaded and enslaved the the, the Hebrews. Um, it's a big thing in the Bible. We talk about it a lot. Probably at that point, the Hebrew calendar uh, came about based on the uh, the Babylonian system. There are other people who say that it might have existed. The seven day week specifically might have existed before their contact with the Babylonians. I don't know. I, mm. I, I've seen both, but it, it, it would make a lot of sense to me uh, th- to have that ported over culturally. There's a lot of other things that move from the Babylonians to the Hebrews in this era. Is there much Hebrew history predating that enslavement? Yeah, there's there's a few centuries. Okay, um, but there's a lot of cultural stuff that does come fairly directly from the Babylonians, right? In, including some of the uh, some of the aspects uh, of the like very early creation stories. You know, the, the flood story is originally Babylonian, mm. um, or or shows up in both sources at the very least. So there are, there are many people who would claim that the uh, the idea of the Sabbath is actually uh, descendant of this uh, this holy day or evil day right. uh, concept. Uh, take the seventh day off. Um, Greeks stuck with a lunisolar calendar. Um, they did a intercalarian month every other year. Uh, my favorite thing about this is they actually started naming their months, which isn't something that people did before. They were naming uh, their months after the gods. They usually put their month or their extra month after um, the month they call Poseidon. And when they had an extra month, they just called it Second Poseidon, yeah. <laughs> which I really love. Where it's like, hey, when are you leaving for your trip? Oh, May 17th. Really? Wasn't that? No, no, no. Other May. Other May 17th. That's no, 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 not the first one. I, I, I love that. It's May so good. May 2, the revenge. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Poseidon 2, electric boogaloo. Yeah. Now, this festival calendar, that's what they, they called it a festival calendar, existed beside a political calendar, which was basically a, a table of like who had political responsibilities at what times. And it was generally divided along, uh, they had like clans or tribes within each city. And so however many cl- uh, clans there were in the city, the year was divided up into that many segments. So it got very messy, like on a city to city basis. Yeah, it was, it was an absolute mess. Was taxation mixed into that too? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it got very sloppy. Chinese started out with fully solar, solar calendar, uh, 10, 36 day months. Um, which again is pretty close. That 360 number comes up a lot. Mm. Um, they moved to a lunisolar calendar during the Warring States period, so between 475 BCE to 220 BCE, uh, a little over 2,000 years ago. They began every single month on the new moon, keeping it pretty pretty simple that way. Again, uh, that actually takes away some of the uh, accuracy they had before that. Trying to fit that moon in there mm. is always going to be uh, a bit of a hassle because do you want the month to always start on the full or on the new moon, or do you want the year to always start on the same season? Right. They don't match up. You have to make a decision there. 
Uh, Hindu calendar developed 1000 BCE, um, but significantly influenced by uh, invasion of Alexander the Great, actually. They brought a lot of ideas oh. in from the Greeks. Um, years based on solar calculation, um, but weeks and months are based on uh, sidereal lunar calculation. So they're not going by phases. They're going by its position in the zodiac. Oh. So they're actually using 27 and a bit day months. Okay. Which is really interesting to me. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the primacy of the zodiac over the actual phases of the moon uh, is, is really really interesting, and that fascination with the zodiac uh, wasn't really there before the Greeks brought the fascination with the zodiac along with them. Were they the originators of that? Uh, I mean, everyone was looking at the stars, but the zodiac that we know now is Greek in origin, and the um, the Vedic zodiac is is based fairly heavily on, or, okay. or we believe is based fairly heavily on the on the Greek one. Right. Uh, they have extremely complicated mathematical formulas to try and match up these two systems because they basically have two independent calendars working at the same time, and they're trying to keep them in line. It gets extremely complicated in terms of when they're adding uh, months and even half months at certain points, trying to keep it all in yeah all in line. Yeah. That being said. The mathematics that were that were required to keep it in line, um, it ends up keeping the time, uh, the estimated length of a year, um, by the year one thousand CE or so. They had it estimated to within minutes. Oh, which is amazing, because it required this level of like attention to try and get it matched up. Do we know that from looking back now, or did they know that they were nailing it? There were about eight different um, astronomers in the same period who all basically tried to independently uh, determine to the second, it was actually to the microsecond, um, the length of the year. And they were all within a couple of seconds of each other. And they all went, well, we probably have it. Okay. They're very close. Jeez. Let's talk about the Mayan calendar real quick. And then we'll take a break. Uh, let's get into this. It's kind of the elephant in the room. Everyone wants to talk about the Mayan calendar. It's not that big a deal. That's that's my main takeaway here, okay? Okay. It's very old. Uh, the origins of the Mayan calendar, it's at least 2,500 years old. Uh, at least the 5th century BCE, probably before that. And the reason it's so fascinating to people is that it's very complicated and it's fairly accurate. It does a pretty good job. Hmm. It kind of consists of several calendars overlaid. There's the um, ceremonial calendar. It's called the Tzolkin, and it's 260 days long. And that is specifically for uh, ceremonial matters. So that's how you decide when festivals are held, when um, you know political uh, uh, activities are held, things like that. It is all for determining stuff that really doesn't matter that much in terms of like uh, tropical time. So it would come a bit over three months earlier mm-hmm. in the year every year? Correct. Oh. It consists of 20-day uh, names and 13-day numbers. So you could say that it had uh, uh, 13 months uh, of 20 days each. Um, so you would have a day number or day name and then one. D- uh, the next day name, one. Next day name, one. And then once you get through all 20 days... Then it's first day name two. Okay. Until you go through a cycle of that 13 times. Uh, and then you get to the beginning of the next uh, um, 
the next cal- uh, ceremonial year, next Sulkin. Then you have the Hob, which is a uh, it's a uh, it's like an approximate solar year. Uh, it's always three hundred sixty five days, so it does drift because it's a quarter day short, basically. Right. Um, but it's close enough. It's still exactly it's still three hundred sixty five days. Um, and this is made up of, again, 18 20-day months, which gets us to 360 days, uh, plus five unnamed days. Those are festival days again. I am digging this five-day festival thing. Yeah. Yeah, I th- that's my takeaway. And this is all for agricultural purposes. This is all for agricultural planning. Right. Uh, these two things combine into what's known as the calendar round. And the calendar round is that every 52 years these two systems line up oh and this isn't even the one this isn't even i know but i can see some Uh, the calendar round takes place every 52 years which is like approximately like one lifetime i mean it's short of one lifetime but like it's a very good indication of like a human life as in terms of like keeping track of of time uh, it's really useful for stuff like that. So what you can do generation. is you can take, yeah, exactly. So you can take um, the Zulkin date and the Hob date, lay them over each other, and you would know where in the Hob that Zulkin had taken place. The closest like analogy I can come up with is this 52-year cycle is like when the year, like when January 1st finally falls on a Wednesday again right. versus like the last time it fell on a Wednesday. Um, it's more regular than that, but like that's that's the sort of lineup that we're talking about here. Yeah. Finally, we have the long count calendar, and this is the one that everybody gets all worked up about. Basically, they realized that the hob, or sorry, the, the calendar round was not long enough to talk about historical things. And they needed a, a more robust system. The The long count calendar, though, uh, is um, in base 20. So what they do is they, they beyond, the, uh, beyond the calendar round, they count up in intervals of base 20. So uh, each one is 20 times more than the last one. And what you get to is the system that at its largest unit, the Alatun, it cycles every 63 million years. So they are not going to have a problem telling you exactly when something happened. Yep. They can almost get the, to the extinction of the dinosaurs with that with that system. Yeah, I like the future proofing. December 21st, 2012. Um, the long count calendar cycled over on one of its units. It's called a Bakhtun, and it's a 394-year count. That's it. It's overflow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now it just moved up to the next button. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the other all the other uh, digits in the long count calendar rolled over to zero. And then we get going again. I don't know. If the world's going to end, I feel like it's going to be at one of those 63 million ones. Yeah. That seems like a way more reasonable one. So yeah. anyways, don't worry about 2012. It was fine. That really feels like just six people. Six years ago. Yeah. Feels like people not understanding other base systems. It's not even that. It's just any remote attempt at understanding a, a slightly different culture or or i don't know like reading the entry like the, the intro to the wiki entry like it, it was not Simple that complicated Wikipedia. it was not that complicated at all anyways i know that was a little uh um 
anticlimactic. No, no, that's exactly uh, what I wanted it to be. That's good. I'm glad. Let's take a break here because we've been talking about calendars a lot. And we, when we come back, let's talk about, uh, instead of really long units of time, let's talk about much shorter ones. Let's talk about hours and minutes and things like that. Okay. Hey everyone, just wanted to pop in quick and mention that if you were listening to the episode prior to this one, uh, you would have noticed we were planning on talking about the Ottoman Empire. Obviously that, uh, that plan changed a little bit, and obviously this episode was a little bit later than we were really expecting. So um, just wanted to mention that that topic will be done at some point, we just had to put it on the back burner for now, and uh, hopefully we can keep things on a little bit better uh, or a little bit tighter schedule from here on out. Uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we've been talking a lot about calendars. We sort of discussed at the very beginning that the day is kind of the most natural, uh, the shortest natural uh, time interval to keep count of. But a day is kind of a long time when you want to get very specific and isn't necessarily the most useful for like going about your daily business, planning meals, when to meet up with somebody, things like that. Just very pedestrian. When to eat. Yeah, exactly. And people have been trying to figure out how to sort of portion out their day a little bit closer um, for a very long time. As we talked about at the beginning, there is sort of a understandably romanticized period where that stuff just doesn't matter. Eat when you're hungry, do what you need to do, whatever. That hasn't been the case for a very long time. That's the sort of thing that civilization puts uh, kind of in the rear view mirror for better or worse. <laughs> um, still for a very long time, position of the sun in the sky, pretty reasonable approximation of, of what time it is with the obvious marker being noon when the sun gets highest in the sky, when shadows get shortest, that's not enough. You can't really go just by sunrise, sunset and noon. And so people have been trying to get better measurements than that for uh, for a really long time. The easiest way to do that is by getting a static thing and checking out where the shadows that the sun casts uh, lie on the ground. Uh, it's got a couple benefits. More accurate, less blinding, you know, mm, stuff yeah. like that. And this is the thing we've been doing for a very long time obelisks in egypt mm -hmm. this is why you have obelisks i mean they're cool towers and they got sweet carvings and stuff on them they're shadow clocks sick clocks they're very they're very utilitarian like um they're, they're there to show you what time of uh, of the day it is and they've been around for well i mean the earliest ones that we know of are like 3500 bce it's a thing we've been paying attention to for a really long time Obelisks could be, uh, they would have um, markings sort of laid out and they, they would switch it from side to side between morning and afternoon. Uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, they can also be used to tell you when the uh, equinox is mm -hmm. because obelisks would always be set up exactly square to a north-south axis using the stars. And so when the, uh, when the sun, or sorry, when the shadow of the obelisk was perfectly east-west, then you know that it's the equinox. Uh, 
actually kind of useful for paying attention to uh, to the seasons as they pass. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians working in uh, base 12, as we talked about, took the day and divided it into 12 hours. Every day was 12 hours. Thing is, uh, every day isn't 12 hours if you use the hour as a, an exact measurement of time. Uh, because of that tilt of the of the earth, uh, the amount of daylight that you have per day varies. Um, not as badly in Egypt, but yeah. uh, as you get away from the equator, it can be quite significant. That 12-hour day was more a matter of how far away from the uh, sunrise are you and how far away from the sunset are you. It just sort of gives you a general idea of what amount of light do you have left. Yeah. But that's where that starts, and that's why we have a 12-hour day. That's why we have a, well, a 24-hour day. The The concept was if you have 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark go along with it, there's your 24-hour day. Pretty simple. I mean, this may be jumping ahead a bit, and if so, that's fine. Sure. But has anyone in modern times tried a day in which there are exactly 12 hours between sunrise and sunset and between sunset and sunrise? regardless of latitude i have thought about this so much while uh, while researching this and i'm trying to figure out if that would be horrible hmm. or actually kind of nice so worth trying i'm i'm really curious because I, I can see both sides of that i can see i can see an argument for going you know hey you you have exactly 12 hours all the time but we're going to tie that to the light um it doesn't matter if today is only uh you know 10 hours long, um, you're still dividing it up into that same number of of chunks. Those chunks are just shorter and then you can get to bed sooner. Mm -hmm. Sounds kind of nice. It does. I mean, it sounds certainly closer to our rhythms. Yes. So I agree. And I mean, there are still going to be, um, up until very, very recently, many, many people who are setting their, their, uh, lives to that rhythm. Uh, regardless of of what people are telling them about the length of an hour. Artificial lighting is a luxury for a pretty long time. Mm. But yeah, I, 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 did, I did absolutely think about that quite a bit. There's some significant problems with using the sun to tell time. Number one, doesn't work at night. It's pretty bad. Number two, doesn't work if it's cloudy. That also sucks. The other problem is that variability of the hour. Again, on the equator, not as big a deal. But it does change, and as we talked about with the calendars, a lot of what people are trying to measure is um, celestial. It's not necessarily just day-to-day stuff, right? They're trying to get a better understanding of uh, the stars, which they're seeing as a, as a divine act. The more carefully you need to measure something, the more accurate you need your timing to be. It's weird. I mean, it, it feels like it's relatively recent that we talk about time as potentially being a you know dimension that we move through uh from like a physics point of view um but we talk about time as distance a lot in kind of just casual conversation um you know hey how far do you how, how far from work do you live that's about 15 10, minutes about 10 minutes yeah mm-hmm. um no you don't i mean that's only at very specific speeds i know the speed kind of stays the same but like that's not a distance it's it's a weird little quirk of the way our brains work mm-hmm. and um that need for very specific time to measure that distance or distance to measure time 
uh, the the kind of flow back and forth between those those two needs for uh, greater and greater accuracy. Um, a lot of that drive comes from the necessity uh, to more accurately measure what's happening uh, in the sky. You can say it. It's from astronomy nerds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's from Neil deGrasse Tyson type people. Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. That's, that's, you know what? I was afraid to say it. Thank you for going there. Thanks, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thanks, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> the result of this is that, um, you know, measuring, measuring the, the sky and measuring the stars and realizing after a while that the stars are pretty constant, especially compared to something like the sun or the seasons. The stars are very dependable. Um, we first realized that by using uh, things like water clocks. A water clock is uh, uh, an instrument that uses the flow rate of water to measure uh, a set rate of time. And these have a lot of different ways they can kind of manifest. One of my favorite ones is they would make a bowl and just put very small holes in the bottom and then just float it on the surface of water and it just wait until it filled up and sank and the second it sinks below the surface of the water then your interval is over um it's a very elegant solution it only times exactly one time yep somewhat um, impractical <laughs> it is but like that's the thing about something like a water clock is there are civilizations who will employ like royal timekeepers who literally all they do is sit there watching this thing fill up. And every time it sinks, they put a pebble in a bowl and then pick it back up and start it again Oof. because timekeeping is so important. Again, like I, this, this is like a primordial technology for human beings. This is so important to us for, for various reasons. Using things like time clocks, and, and I mean, they can, they can take all sorts of different forms, but it's yeah. just any sort of flow rate, right? Yeah, now I'm picturing a Rube Goldberg machine that I would build in the ancient world that would automatically drop a pebble every time a bowl fills up and tips. We are getting there, my man. Oh, yes. Absolutely. We, the, the most complex mechanical advances that are going to be made between about 200 BC and 500 uh, CE are going to all be about timekeeping and then again from the 1600s to the 1800s probably you're not far off i mean at least there there's some other stuff going on yeah you know we we talk about the um i didn't even write it in my notes because i wasn't actually planning on talking about it but uh you know that you know that first computer they talk about finding at the bottom of the aegean off mm. on, a, on a greek ship yeah uh, what is it called antikythera Anti yeah uh that's a timekeeping mechanism mm -hmm. that's what that thing does it's a it's a small astrolabe slash timekeeper. We built that stuff to keep track of time, both on a long scale and a short scale. Um, once we realized using using water clocks uh, that this, the 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 stars are very regular. The uh, the next step for that in Egypt is what's known as a, a merkit, which is a, a stellar clock. So this one works at night. Right. moving up in the world yeah. what you do is you take a plumb bob so you know that it's straight up and down you align the top of the plumb bob with uh polaris the, the north star and then you mark off when certain stars cross that line so you uh you calibrate it using water clocks to approximately an hour because remember their hours don't vary that much you wait for an hour to pass and then you look at 
which major star is at the thread. And then from then on, any time that you need to know what time it is at night, you can look at that thread, see which major star is there, and that's the time. (laughs) I'm picturing one of those infomercial ads where they they can't use saran wrap because they're not real (laughs) adult humans yeah but like it's easy all you need to do is set up your plumb bob and look through the through the sighting and you could just easily check the time in 25 minutes yeah pretty much i mean it's it's a it's an elegant solution but you know it takes it it takes a long time to figure that one out finally we can tell time at night without a poor old man who has to sit there and continually (laughs) empty out a bowl that is leaking Water clocks are useful because they're not daylight dependent. Um, they are very sensitive to temperature variance. Yes. Um, and if you live further away from the equator, they can freeze, and that's a problem. Uh, there are actually uh, efforts in various parts of the world, uh, China, uh, later in the Islamic world, to uh, to make these with mercury rather than water, because number one, they use mercury for everything, and number two, mercury doesn't freeze until much, much lower temperatures than water. And you feel so great when you're checking the time. <laughs> Those beautiful shimmering fumes. Um, Have you listened to the S-Town podcast? I have listened to S-Town. I know this is completely off topic, but wow, what a podcast. It was very good. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, where were we? <laughs> water clocks. Um, the biggest problem with the water clock, beyond the uh, the environmental issues, um, is that water flow is variable. And this is a problem that isn't going to be solved until we develop the calculus, basically. Mm. That means that really your smallest unit of time that you can use with the water clock is to either fill or unfill the entire vessel. Mm-hmm. You can't mark off portions. You can't have a water clock that runs for four hours and uh, have one hour uh, or consistently have one hour markings, at least without calibrating with smaller clocks. But it it becomes a little bit finicky that way. And if it's not done uh, exactly, you can really get into issues of of variable flow. And elevation would matter too. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, I think at that point we're probably getting beyond the uh, the level of accuracy that these clocks were capable of. But <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, yeah, these clocks are a really interesting departure, though, from um, from sundials because these units of time are not really variable. They're fa- they're fairly consistent, and up mm-hmm. until now, an an hour has been defined as a fraction of a variable length of time specifically daylight this is divorced from that variation that gets us into the sort of uh territory that we began with um talking about lewis mumford where we can start measuring time in a fungible manner and you get into the greeks and the romans uh for example using water clocks uh in court to mark out how long someone is allowed to speak uh, speak for. Same thing in uh, assembly government. You can't hog the floor forever. You get one water clock worth of time. Yeah. Once this is done, you're done talking. They would use specifically um, uh, a type where the water would run out of it um, because what would happen is when someone would say, for example, uh, present documents that people needed to read over before they 
could make a decision about something. They would take some wax and they would plug the hole until everyone had a chance to see what was going on. And then they'd say, okay, go. And they'd take the wax back out and your time was running again, literally running out of this jar. Mm -hmm. Um, Another place that they saw a lot of use of water clocks is in brothels. This is how much time you get. But this is the commodification of time, right? This is this is a this is a, a point in time where we can start saying, okay, you get this much time, and this is not an arguable thing. This is not uh, something that can be negotiated. Time is a fixed; it is a fixed unit, and there there is no. It, it's an objective unit. This is not something that can be discussed. The Greeks really had a handle, sort of, on this issue of diminishing flow as water runs out of something. The the inability to accurately mark out um, time using uh, um, varying uh, flow rates because what they wanted to do was they were sick of refilling these clocks. They wanted to find something that could deal with a constant rate of flow that would mark off intervals of time. And this is what's known as a, a, a clepsydra, a Greek water clock. And they, they began building sort of intermediary basins um, that would uh, then uh, have water running out of it at a constant rate that would be kept full from another basin that someone would periodically come along and refill. And that water flowing out of the secondary basin would then be at a constant rate. And what this allowed them to do was um, th- build mechanisms that worked on time intervals. And this is a really important concept in timekeeping and also the concept of time because this idea of time as a discrete unit like the idea of a second as being a, a fixed thing uh, is also really important in measurement it's it's you know uh, mechanically speaking it's something that's called an escapement an escapement is a thing that takes a constant amount of energy and turns it into a discrete unit and this is a thing that happens intermittently and for uh, the same uh, uh, distance and that allows you to have, um, you know, eventually a long way down the road. It, this is a thing that allows you to have a minute hand that moves from one minute to another minute, uh, rather than a sweeping motion. You have a fixed minute. Um, it's a it's a fundamental thing about um, the way that clocks work inside. Uh, you need escapements, but it's also about um, the the idea of precision in time. The idea that we can't just take. Uh, time that's just going and going and going and call that something that's measurable. You have to have that observability. You have to have um, pieces. You have to break it up. Quantization. Yes, exactly. Um, and it kind of speaks to the way that we think about things like past, present, and future. You know, how long is the present? You know, it's just weird stuff like that that we don't really need to get into, but it starts kind of messing with the way we think about the passage of time. Once you can break it up, then all of a sudden now is different than other times. Uh, and it's 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 some really interesting stuff. These clepsydra get more and more and more complicated because they want them to do more and more things. They realize once they don't have to have that dude who constantly fills the clock up and redoes the thing and counts the pebble. Who charges the clock? Yes, essentially, yeah. Once you once you don't have that guy involved, what else can we do with this? What else can we do if we just have a constant flow rate? What if we have that turning a paddle wheel? Uh, they start inventing alarm clocks. Plato invented an alarm clock. <laughs> it would ring gongs or they would blow horns. They had clocks like that also... Squeeze a rooster. <laughs> like the Flintstones. And then an egg rolled down the track and cracked open into the pan. Yeah. Um, no, we, we have them displaying phases of the moon. 
we have them do like, all sorts of really uh, complex things. Complications. Yes. Well, I mean, that's yes. Stop grinning like that. Yes, that's a complication. A complication is a thing for everyone else who's not feeling smug about themselves right now. A complication is a thing. Horology. A, a complication is a thing in a clock other than just like the the uh the express mechanism of telling time it's the things like the the uh the date uh rolling over and things like that that uh, can be extrapolated from the main uh uh drive gears we, we talked about that that period uh of you know 700 years or so uh up until uh a little after the fall of the roman empire where they're just creating more and more elaborate water clocks here's the crazy thing about these water clocks they're doing things like they're, they're using belt drives to to move mechanisms they have little automata they have little um you know men who pop they're basically making cuckoo clocks uh, they have little figures that, that kind of pop out and, open yeah. and move around and things like that this whole time one of the complications that they're putting in place is that they're not, they're no longer measuring fixed hours. As soon as they figure out how to, they see that as a bug, not a feature. Because it's useful for the specific uh, application of astronomy. But when people are telling time, they want a division of how much daylight they have. Right. And that's what an hour is, darn it. And that's what I want to know. I want to have a clock that tells me what a, 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 a sundial would tell me, whether it's sunny or not. And that's the express goal. And so they have these things where they're varying the flow rates so that it moves at varying speeds so that the hours change duration based on what time of the year we're in. That's impressive. It's impressive and it's so unnecessary and I understand why it happened. It's particularly impressive when you don't have calculus. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it would, it would be entirely trial and error. They had uh, these these floats that they put in place. They had these sliding gates that that uh, that uh, uh, affected the flow rate and, and caused Cams it to move. And all sorts of. And here's the thing: they were never as precise as a sundial because they can't be. They can't be. Not when you're dealing with that level of complication with that level of technology. You just you 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 can't. Um, I am I am certain that there is some. A uh, mechanical engineering grad student out there right now who is building a water clock that is precise down to a very very uh, uh, small number of um, uh, degrees to what a uh, uh, sundial would show you, and they're doing it because they can, not because it's actually a useful thing. I I would look at that. I think that would be fascinating. I would love to see it. I've been thinking rich people do really silly things with their money nowadays. What we really need is giant water clocks <laughs> that, it would be great it would be really interesting you'd have to control for altitude you'd have to control for temperature you would have to uh, you know custom machine all these valves and 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 uh, oh It'd be the best i want to see it so bad but it would be useless because who tells time like that anymore the only the wealthy and frivolous the the uh sort of the most complex version of this uh, at least in the in the Greek world, is is um, in the first century BCE in Athens. There's this in the in the agora in the in the marketplace. They build this tower of the winds, and it's considered the first meteorological station. And it is this forty foot tall tower, which doesn't sound that impressive, but this is over two thousand years ago. That is by far the tallest building in this uh, in this specific area, and on this. Uh, on this tower, not only do you have um, 
weather vanes that show you the uh, the direction of the wind, hence the name. Uh, but you also have uh, one of the most complex water clocks of the ancient world, telling time, adjusting for which day of the year it is. Wow. The Islamic world picked up water clock designs. Um, and after the fall of Rome, this is really where most of the scientific and engineering progress comes from. We, I mean, we, we know uh, similar things were going on in China, but a lot of the time it's less well documented. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of the focus is on, uh, on the Islamic world. Um, what they elaborate from these is so far beyond what the Greeks or Romans ever managed to do. Uh, it's it's not even funny. Um, their flow regulators are are actually carefully constructed. They're not just kind of a slider that they sort of set where it should probably be. Hmm. Um, they're using weird floats and 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 um, they start introducing things like uh, uh, gear drives into the whole thing. And uh, they I, I there's this one clock uh, called the elephant clock, or sorry the the castle clock by uh, a man named Al Jazari built in 1206. That it, it has all of these like incredibly elaborate um you know when the, when the hour chimes there were these uh mechanical birds that would come out and and they would draw pebbles out of their mouths into bowls like we were talking about and and it's doing nothing but calling back to this this job of of counting the hours and why other than because it's beautiful and and it's like a 50s diner it's 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 it doesn't need anything more than to be beautiful. That's fine. That's, that's enough in and of itself, but as a jukebox. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I, these things have been reconstructed sometimes and I, uh, would be very interested in seeking them out at some point. Oh yeah. Uh, it sounds amazing. There's other things that are being used to tell time other than water clocks. I've been focusing on them a lot because it's the struggle kind of like the calendar to reconcile to completely, uh, irreconcilable things. One is a, a constant uh, thing, the the flow of water, and the other is an inconsistent thing, the length of a, an hour as defined by daylight. And it never quite works. It never quite marries. Um, there are other consistent timekeeping uh, devices that are being used. Candle clocks are really popular. Um, candle makers would make uh, candles with markings on them. Uh, when you have a candle of a consistent uh, uh, thickness, it will burn at a consistent rate as long as it's made of the same thing with the same wick. And so they just mark off how long it takes to burn down one hour. Uh, they would put them in a glass housing usually just to make sure that it didn't get blown out. Very consistent, but not seen as, as useful as a, a water clock because you couldn't vary that flow rate. Hmm. You had things like, uh, same thing with an oil lamp clock. It would just be an oil lamp, but there would be markings on the oil reservoir. Right. It takes about this long to burn down this much oil really elegant really simple incense clocks were really popular especially in asia um you had people uh producing incense sticks that would change scent every hour <laughs> which is just like the most decadent and beautiful thing i've ever heard i just imagine getting a, a, a you know all of a sudden there's like a whiff of sandalwood and you're like oh it's nine <laughs> i'm actually put in mind of of something tangentially related when i spent some time working at uh snow lab at the physics lab uh underground in the mine mm -hmm. up north yep. the we had to go through the normal mine training the same thing that more miners go through when they're starting out right and uh one element of that was uh introducing us to the fire alarm 
Okay. When you're underground, you know, 6,000 feet underground and off in a drift out, you know, far away from anyone else, mm. um, what do you do if there's a fire down there um, and you need to get to a refuge station? How do you, how do you tell people that they need to get out? Especially if uh, radio signals, they don't propagate through rock very well. Right. Um, the sound really doesn't go very far yeah. underground. Uh, but what we do have when we're mining deep underground is a very carefully planned air system. Mm-hmm. We need constant fresh air or we'll die. Yep. So I thought it very clever that in a mine, the fire alarm is a really terrible smell huh. that they inject into the air supply. I can't remember the chemical that they put in, but it sounds like rotting or smells like rotting onions, like just a really pungent smell. Yeah. So that um, if anyone is down off on their own and there's a a bad fire that's causing danger in the area, they'll smell that and they'll know, oh, this is the fire alarm. I need to go to the refuge station. That's really interesting. And you don't often think about smell as a form of communication. No, it's it's not commonly used but it's it's a, a really interesting one when it is that th- this incense stick like i said it's it's did you ever see um curse of the golden flower no you should uh it's this uh movie out of china but it's like it's it's very shakespearean in feel and it's it's a lot of court intrigue and stuff and there's okay. silks everywhere oh, and it's yeah. just ridiculous outfits and I'll, when i heard that like changing uh uh sense on the hour that's all i could think of was this movie where yeah. you know they're they're wearing 10 pounds of gold just to go out to tea and all of this a- anyways it, it's it's a yeah as as a timekeeping method though it's a really interesting one and incense is a, a really common one actually for a long time too um because it's a lot safer than something like an oil lamp or or, or a candle for indoors and right. burns actually at a much more consistent uh speed it's so common, in fact, that um, in Japan, geisha would use the number of incense sticks burned while in their presence uh, to figure out how much to charge you. Yeah. And that was used up until 1924. Wow. Yeah. Now, a lot of that is the ceremonial nature of geisha. It's, it's you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that is uh, uh, needlessly traditional there, uh, other than, you know, for the sake of tradition. And they'd only been, like between 50 and 75 years out of the um oh the meiji restoration yeah yeah out of the feudal times yes yeah exactly so um but in in any case the the fact that it's being used still so so recently is is really interesting um and then in in 1371 again uh in the Islamic world uh Abu Hassan ibn al-Shatir figures out something really interesting about keeping track of the time with the sun there's this part on a on a sundial. It's the the triangle that sticks up that actually casts the, sh- the shadow. It's mm-hmm. called a gnomon. He figured out that if you set the gnomon to exactly parallel to the Earth's axis from where you are, so that means that depending on your latitude, it changes mm. the angle of it. But you want to point that thing directly parallel to the Earth's axis, so directly at the uh, at, at the north star, and it is directly on a north south axis. If you if you get that aligned, the length of an hour will not change on that sundial, no matter what day of the year it is. Oh. It's the only way to make it work. And he goes, maybe this is a good idea. And honestly, that was the end of the quest for the variable hour clock. Really? Which was really holding everybody back a lot, because it was really tricky to do. 
So no one had just no one had noticed that before. Nope. I mean, the idea of of trig- the the the, uh, the level of trigonometry needed to figure that out um, was relatively recent at this point. Okay. I mean, consider the number of mathematical advances that were made in that area of the world during this period of time. Yeah. Um, there's a reason that algebra has a, an Arabic name. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a pretty new thing. Also, the Greeks did not do well with things like that. I don't know if you, you and I have ever talked about this on the podcast, but their, their math system was very self-limiting. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, like I said, how, how familiar you are with it, but if it doesn't fit in a fraction, they don't believe it actually exists. Yeah. they were pretty opinionated. Yeah. Um, no matter what the, no matter what the evidence suggested. So, the idea of, um, you know, for example, dividing up both the circle and the night sky into 360 degrees, which again is base 60, by the way, um, and using those degrees uh, to, you know, get into relatively advanced trigonometry was a new thing. Even the Pythagorean theorem, the proof didn't make any sense in the old Greek. It worked, just not the way it really should have. Yeah. And it took the uh, it took the Arabic world to actually figure out how it's supposed to work. Uh, that's this era, and yeah. that's the type of knowledge that's needed to actually work uh, work out a, a properly calibrated nomen uh, to the level of accuracy needed to get a consistent hour. I think this is a really good place to end because um, what we get going forward is. Uh, a consistent uh, recalibration of both the calendar and and uh, more limited timekeeping until more or less the present day. It's going to move pretty quick. So uh, why don't we leave it there and uh, we'll pick up next time. All right. Thanks. As our knowledge of astronomy, mathematics, and engineering increased, our understanding of how best to keep track of time continued to become more and more precise. Next time, we'll talk about the development of the Gregorian calendar, the one we use today, as well as the quest for more accurate clockmaking. That episode will be up on November 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. (laughs) 